the Philistines had done what the Israelites thought could never be done. They had captured the Ark of the Covenant. But God could not be captured and defeated just because the symbol of his presence was in enemy hands. First, the Philistines and their god Dagon were humiliated by the true God in Dagon's own temple. Without anyone present, God had knocked the idol Dagon off his little perch. So he was face down in a posture of submission before the ark. But the Philistines just put him back up on the shelf. The very next night, the same thing happened. But this time, his head and his hands, notice the text, had been cut off. Then the people of the city where the ark was, the city of Ashdod, were afflicted with tumors and the plague. Terrified by this turn of events, the ark was taken to another city, the city of Gath. But the same thing happened there, causing, quote, a very great panic. Well, the Philistines tried one more city. Ekron, but the people there in a deathly panic cried out for the ark of God of Israel to be sent away and returned to its own place that it might not kill them. In 1 Samuel 5, verses 11 and 12, we read the hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors and the cry of the city went up to heaven. Evidently, many people died by God's holy wrath. Now, this story really comes to life for Marty and I, and hopefully Megan remembers, because 15 years ago, when you guys let us go to Israel to see Tricia, who was studying there for one semester, and it was Megan's graduation, we stayed, when we were around Jerusalem, in, guess what city? Bet Shemesh. And then, on the way to Jerusalem, which we did several times traveling, we also stopped at a particular field, where a couple of cows had stopped in this story. The city of Kiriath-Jerim. And so, even though much is being lost upstairs, those highways and that little town in the hill country is a vivid picture still. This is an incredible story. Today we're going to see what happens when the Philistines decide to return the ark to Israel. If you are able, would you please stand as I read the sixth chapter of 1 Samuel through the second verse of chapter 7. So all of chapter 6 through chapter 7, verse 2. be reading from the English 
Standard Version. The ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. And the Philistines called for the priest and the diviners and said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us with what we shall send it to its place. They said, If you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return him a guilt offering. Then you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. And they said, What is the guilt offering that we shall return to him? They answered, Five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines. For the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. So you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravage the land and give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from off you and your gods in your land. Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? After he had dealt severely with them, did they not send the people away and they departed? Now then, take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows on which there has never come a yoke, and yoke the cows to the cart, but take their calves home, away from them. And take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart and put in a box at its side the figures of gold which you are returning to him as a guilt offering. Then send it off and let it go its way and watch. If it goes up on the way to its own land, to Bet Shemesh, then it is he who has done this great harm. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that struck us, It happened to us by coincidence. The men did so and took two milk cows and yoked them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. And they put the ark of the Lord on the cart and the box with the golden mice and the images of their tumors. And the cows went straight in the direction of Bet Shemesh along one highway, lowing as they went. They turned neither to the right nor to the left, And the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Bet Shemesh. Now the people of Bet Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. And when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. The cart came into the field of Joshua of Bet Shemesh and stopped there. A great stone was there. And they split up the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it, in which were the golden figures, and set them upon the great stone. And the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices on that day to the Lord. And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. These are the golden tumors that the Philistines returned as a guilt offering to the Lord, one for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, and one for Ekron. And the golden mice, according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and unwalled villages. 
The great stone beside which they set down the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. And he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them. And the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eliezer to have charge of the ark of the Lord. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some 20 years, and all of the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Now, most of you have heard this story, and you've read it probably many times. It's fascinating, is it not? There's questions as we read this. But we just don't get a fascinating story. We also discover that God, here in this portion of his scripture, really does reveal the answers to three of the most important questions anybody could ever ask. First, how can we escape God's holy wrath? How can we escape? God's holy wrath. We see here in this story the Philistines devising this very intricate plan in their attempt to escape God's wrath. So we learn something about what they knew and what they didn't know about the one true God. And in case you're wondering, every man and woman who has ever lived on the face of the earth needs to ask this question because why? We all have a sin nature deserving God's wrath. This is a question for every person ever. The second question that we see God answer in this story is, how can we understand God's holy ways? We see here how the Philistines, typical of all men, tried to figure out the ways of the holy God when they didn't really know him. The third question, how can we abide in the presence of holy God? And we also see here how the Israelites learned some more hard lessons about living and abiding in God's holy presence, do we not? So first, how can we escape God's holy wrath? In chapter 6, we see this intricate plan that the Philistines cook up. 
But don't lose sight, again, of why they're doing this. They have seen, in an up-close and personal way, for how long did our text start out and say? Seven months. How the one true God is far greater than their little idol that they'd made themselves and had to take care of themselves. But not only had God acted by himself to humiliate their God, Dagon, their false God, but God had also afflicted them with a powerful demonstration of his wrath in the form of tumors, and the text says, a plague, which means death. In the typical fashion of people who don't know God, the Philistines are really, we could say, hedging their bets, trying to placate God with what? Things. Yeah, it's gold, but still, things. Their goal is what? What's their goal? They're trying to escape God's further judgment, but with a catch. They want to escape God's judgment without yielding to him and believing in him savingly. I don't know about you, but that sounds like the world we live in. The reason why it sounds like it is because it is the world we live in. Even when people are confronted with catastrophic events, think in our recent history, what was church attendance like the Sunday after 9-11? Where are those people today? Okay, this is normal operating procedure. People do not want to submit to the God they know is there, but they sure don't want his judgment and his wrath anymore in their lives. They don't want to even admit that it may be there or it may be coming. But these people did have some insight into their situation, didn't they? Yeah, they did. We can see by what they tried to do. But they also displayed great ignorance. So we can be informed by this passage that looks like this great, exciting story just by seeing what they knew and what they didn't know and then what they tried to do about it. And we can use that to help gird our own knowledge of what God's truth is about who he is and what our condition is. So what did they know? Well, they did know that they had offended this holy God. Dagon's little shrine made that perfectly clear. And they needed to offer a a suitable sacrifice to satisfy God's righteous anger because of their offenses, which means their sin. They did have a sense of that. They did know this. And there was, as you can tell from the text, a real necessary urgency in seeking God's forgiveness. Did you catch that sense when we read it? They summoned the priest and the diviners. This has gone on long enough. We're dying. Our land has been afflicted. And it's all because the symbol of 
Jehovah God's presence is in our midst. Get this thing out of here. For example, our text tells us that they tried to figure out an offering to send with the ark that would correspond in some ways to the punishment that they were receiving. They didn't just make gold nuggets. Ugly gold. Images of mice and tumors. I mean, really. God's judgment involved diseased mice and fleshly tumors. So their guilt offering here in chapter 6, verses 3 through 5, was made up of golden images of tumors and mice, but also in corresponding numbers to the cities and the people that were afflicted. Tit for tat. It doesn't take too much imagination to figure out that's what we do. Except usually our estimation of the cost and what was really wrong that we did is a lot less than what God says it is. After a night of reckless abandon as a teenager and uh, throwing some things that shouldn't have been thrown and then uh, getting in a little wreck trying to get away, the next morning instead of sitting where I usually like to sit in church, which you've noticed is The next morning I was penance before God. I I was really upset that I got caught. This is the way we think. It's the way we operate. Philistines also were operating that way. Except the stakes were a little more serious. A lot more serious. Because so many of their people had been afflicted and died. As a result, so what we see here in verse 6 of chapter 6 is the Philistine priests and diviners warning their people not to make the mistake the Egyptians had made in dealing with this same God. What, what's their point? Don't harden your hearts and stiffen your neck against this God. Their land was practically wiped off the face of the earth in how many? Twelve incredible demonstrations of God's wrath over and over and over again. And finally they let them go. And even when they let them go, they went after them with the army and then the army got wiped out. Okay, so do you see what these guys are saying? Those stories were well known among the ancient peoples. All of them around that area. Word traveled. The stories were known. And these guys are saying, okay, we're, we're going to be wiser than that. We're going to, right now, he's done this once to our land. We're going to send these very valuable guilt offerings back with this ark and get it out of our territory. That's the thinking. What did they know? Excuse me. 
That's what we just did. What did they not know? They demonstrated some insight, as we've just seen, as to the kind of general situation. But they did not know the biblical perspective on this, did they? Because their offerings would be considered biblically unclean to the Jews. And their estimation of the cost of forgiveness was way too low. So what they needed and what was missing was the biblical truth about how God's wrath against our sins is satisfied. Which means they should have gone and asked an Israelite priest the question. And we go, oh yeah, that would have been a good idea. Who then could have presented the truths about the sacrifice we all need? They could have even used the design of the ark they had had in their presence itself to explain it. Just think about that for a second. The ark, as a, quote, piece of furniture, unquote, which is obviously a whole lot more, is designed to show the seriousness of sin and what is needed to atone for it. So they missed the point completely because they were ignorant of the biblical perspective. But even Israel's sacrificial system pointed to every person in here should be able to answer this. Finish this sentence. The sacrificial system pointed to the ultimate sacrifice of the Savior, of a future Savior, the Messiah, who would sacrifice himself for our sins. That's the whole point. The Philistines had no idea that the sacrifice they really needed, this is important, was so costly that only God could provide it. And what didn't I just say? That God's provision was his own son that he sent to earth in human form to live the perfect life that is demanded of us so that he could be the acceptable sacrifice for our sins. The lesson learned through this account about the only way to escape God's holy wrath is obviously still valid today. One preacher writes, Sinners must not harden their hearts against God's way of forgiveness through faith in Jesus Christ. To refuse to confess their guilt or to reject the way of atonement that God has provided is simple self-destruction. I don't want to go into this, but the liberal church is liberal because they've cut out the heart of the gospel. 
We don't really need forgiveness bad enough for somebody to die. The blood is not really atoning. It's not acceptable. God um, didn't need to demonstrate his wrath against his son. That's just wrong to kill to kill some your own son for this reason. And he goes on and on and on and on. I hope everyone understands that. The simple truth of the gospel is the only way for anyone to escape God's wrath. And that is every person's greatest need, no matter what is going on in their life, no matter how horrible it may be, no matter how traumatic it may be, no no matter how much pain there is. The biggest need is this great need, that every sinner deserves death and will be judged by God, experiences his condemnation, unless his sin is paid for by an acceptable sacrifice. So that's kind of how this story demonstrates the answer to that first question. By the Philistines' incomplete attempt to answer it. Okay, the second question is, how can we understand God's holy ways? Like most people, the Philistines, despite all the recent terrors they knew were from God, they had offended, still wanted to figure out a way to really, really, really know that all this had been from the Lord God Almighty. Does that sound familiar? Yes, it does. We just really, really, really want to know. We know, but we, we want this nailed down. So they came up with this plan that we see in verses 7 through 9. You don't have to be a farmer to understand this plan, but you need a farmer to help you get it. Mother cows and their nursing calves are practically inseparable. So the Philistines used this fact to determine if it was really God who was the one who had done all this great harm to them, or whether it was coincidence. So the cows began hauling the ark and the Philistines' guilt offering. Under normal circumstances... If cows had been separated from their calves and the calves were back where they were being sent from, then where would the cows go if they were just let loose? Back to the calves. That's the strategy. Pretty smart. But Where did the cows go? We read in our text they went straight in the direction of Bet Shemesh along one highway, lowing as they went. In his mercy here, we see God accommodating the Philistines' approach to discerning his will in this whole matter. He made it clear, yeah, this was for me. But any superstitious 
or subjective approach to discerning God's will should trigger our warning system. We need to be really careful how we think about their particular method of doing this. Why? Because when we try to figure out a way to find a sign from God about this or that, what we're really doing is elevating our own hunches and ability to figure this system out. And ideas we're elevating as well so much that we can be easily deceived, and many times we are. So much so that Satan can also add to our deception and blindness. And so many people get in trouble with this. We actually knew some folks decades ago who thought that God had literally told them to move. When asked about this, I know you're looking at me going, yeah, you couldn't keep quiet on that one, or Marty, or any of our other friends. What we found out was that they had taken a map of the United States and gotten on the other side of the room and thrown a dart at it. And wherever it landed, that's where they were going to go. They went. They didn't end up staying very long. Okay, People do these kind of things all the time. Now, that plan was pretty lame when you think about it compared to the Philistines' design. But we get so into this process... We, we think we have to have a sign from God that's crystal clear instead of going through the principles of Scripture and the truth about God and who He is and where we are and what we're doing. And we get all befuddled and many times easily deceived. And what's, what's the portion of Scripture that everyone who's loves these kind of little human inventions, what do they point to? Who do they point to in the Old Testament? His name starts with a G. Gideon, putting out his fleece. If it was dry and it came wet, yeah. We want to know again. If it's wet, came back dry, yeah. That's yeah, this was really me talking to you, says God, uh, and I meant what I said. You're, you're supposed to be a part of this little enterprise. God does accommodate sometimes in his mercy to us in these things. But didn't Gideon see do exactly the same sort of thing when he responded to this command by God to, in seeking supernatural confirmation of something that he had actually told him? Just like the Philistines, God asked God to confirm his involvement by making things happen contrary to nature. Laying his fleece out. And again, God accommodated him, but this was really a sign of Gideon's lack of faith. It wasn't a sign of great faith. It was a sign of lack of faith. If we want God's revelation to us, 
the place to look is in the scriptures, which God has given as a lamp to our feet and a light for our path. First objection. But, Bob, God doesn't write in scriptures the name of who I'm supposed to marry or the place I'm supposed to work or the city I'm supposed to live in or whether I'm supposed to get up tomorrow or whatever. But in ways, yes, he does give us principles to work through to that, to follow his leading as we humble ourselves in prayer and knowledge of who he is all the way through that process. That's one of the ways that we grow. Now think about this. Peter witnessed several clear and magnificent divine revelations, did he not? I mean, there was only a couple of guys on the Mount of Transfiguration that saw the glory of God. And yet, he wrote in Second Peter, his letter, chapter 1, verse 19, that, quote, we have something more, the prophetic word. He's, mean, he's talking about the Bible, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. And it is especially powerful to realize that the very men who walked with Jesus and saw the miracles and had experiences like Peter are the very ones who say, No, don't you spend your time looking for those experiences. You spend your time getting to know God through His Word. You look there. You stand on the truths that you see there. The purpose of this passage, by the way, is not to give people another method that they can use to discern or confirm God's will, which many people, in the middle of all this exciting things going on, they zero right in on this part and go, well, those, those Philistines had a great idea. I'm going to write a book, How to Discern Which Way the Cows Should Go by so-and-so, and I'll get rich, and that's what people do. They take little portions of something they find in God's Word, blow it completely out of context, write something. The masses go by it thinking that this is it. This is the key. This is the thing that will get me over the hump. No, don't. God has already made his point with the Philistines here. We don't know why he accommodated this, but he had made his point, and this was like an exclamation point to it. These people, when they saw what had happened here, the Philistines that followed them, they went back home humbled even more than they were before they sent it, and very glad to be rid of this dangerous holiness. Now they've got it again. They were very glad to escape any more of God's wrath. But they were not willing to think any more about the truths God was emphasizing concerning himself and their sin. So a true reflection of understanding God's ways is to treasure God's word and to humbly trust him in obedience to all that he's revealed in it. 
It's not a magic bullet. There's not some little secret formula that we can follow to find out something that other people have never figured out before. And this is a huge warning in our day because more and more people are going in that direction. The experience, the subjectivity, the superstitious nature of it. The third question, how can we abide in the presence of holy God? Chapter 6, verses 13 through the second verse of chapter 7 illustrates really three vital factors that we can see here in actually abiding or living in the presence of the holy God. First, we see God's people are, are to receive the Lord's God's presence with joy. That's pretty obvious. When the Ark of the Covenant stopped in this field, the people that were out in the fields rejoiced to see it. That's their first reaction, and it was a right one, was it not? They rejoiced. But second, God's people are to dwell with the Lord God in reverence. And as often happens, people are so excited about God's presence and what he's done and this great display of his power that then they get off track. And immediately these people got off track. And it doesn't come out and say in the verses here, oh, now they got off track. We get an answer later about something they did to the ark. But we don't hear anything about what happened when it pulled up in the field other than what happened. So let's explain this. In our text, we see this by seeing that the Israelites' bad example here and, and what God did about it. We see this truth illustrated. Bet Shemesh, the town with the field where the cart stopped, was a Levitical city in which the clan of Kohath lived. You're going... Yeah. The Kohathites were the Levitical clan assigned to take care of the ark within the tabernacle when it was on the move earlier. The point is that these men should have known better than to do what they did when the ark came. What did they do? They committed two serious transgressions. First, they should have known that only bulls could be offered as burnt offerings to the Lord. It's in Leviticus chapter 1. And second, and more serious, they made the ark into more or less a tourist attraction, ignoring the laws about only priests being allowed to see the exterior of the ark. Do you realize that? When it was in the tabernacle, who could go actually in it into the holy place and the most holy place? The priests. And it was elaborately not able to be seen when it was going anywhere else. Seems okay, though, doesn't it? I mean, the ark had been in capture for seven months. And this was such a unique opportunity for all the ordinary Israelites to see what was kept in the most holy place. Surely that's a great idea, right? Let's vote. 
Let's, let's keep it out there. But what seems natural to us is sometimes sacrilege to God. These laws express the utter holiness of God, of the God who was represented by the ark. Do we need to be reminded that we do not show reverence for God by treating him according to our own wisdom and sentiments, but only by obeying the commands and precepts of his word? And that statement is hated in many Christian circles today. Just as the Kohathites' remarkable ignorance in handling the ark reveals the truth about their very real spiritual decline of them and their whole generation, so also does the lack of reverence for God in Christian worship in our day signal a spiritual decline among us. A quote from another pastor. Then, God made this all clear, did he not? When he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of God. Now, some of your translations may say something like 50,000 or 50,700 or something, because the numbers are weird in the text. But we're talking about a very little town, not the whole population of Israel And it can be, uh, and probably more correctly, is translated as some around 70, which would be one person in this big amount, you know, for every, every unit. One here, one here, 70 units of whatever that other figure is. But that's still a lot of people from a small town, especially if they were the Levite priests. You notice how similar their response, the people's response is to God's punishment? In verse 20, to the the Philistine response earlier, they asked the same question, and they did the same thing. They sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim for them to act and come get the ark. Get it out of here. This is a vivid example of the ultimate result when God's people drift away from his word. The church takes on the attitude of the world and ultimately rejects the holy God himself in unbelief. They go together. So third, we see God's people are to dwell in the presence of the Lord God by faith. Where do we see this? Well, we see it in the people of Kiriath-Jerim. They weren't going, no, don't bring it to us. They had exactly the opposite reaction. Yes, we will take it. Now, they had known and seen everything that had happened. So would you say that if you were part of that group, it took great faith to say, yes, bring in the symbol of God's presence to our town. And you know what? The people of Kiriath-Jerim were not Israelites. What? You remember a story in the Old Testament? 
This was a city of Gibeonites. that ring any bells? The people who tricked Joshua into permitting them to actually live, who were assigned as woodcutters and water bearers for the tabernacle back in Joshua chapter 9. Joshua gave them their blessing, let them live. They came in, they saw everybody else being defeated. Okay, this is, this is their descendants. And despite everything that had happened everywhere, the ark had been taken, these people welcomed it. They respected God's laws concerning the ark. And how many years did God allow it to stay there? 20 years. So what is demonstrated here by these people who are not even Israelites? Faith in the Lord. Again, completely counterintuitive. What does this say? What is God demonstrating? That his true people are those who respond to him in faith. Isn't that remarkable? What happened at the end of 20 years? Who was king? David. And David made one very wrong attempt to bring it into Jerusalem. Do you remember? And somebody died because they touched it when it was getting ready to fall off. The point being that God's dirt is cleaner than man's sin. That's a whole other story. We'll get there. Almost. So the next time he made this attempt, he was celebrating gloriously. And that's when it was brought into Jerusalem. Now you notice that the people are lamenting at the end of verse 2, from that, the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed and 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Why were they lamenting? Because the men of one town had almost been wiped out, and the ark was not in the tabernacle because the Philistines had destroyed Shiloh. So it was just out there on the edge of the territory. God works in wondrous ways, does he not? So, trusting in God's grace, humbly adhering to God's word, they had the privilege of housing God's holy ark for a generation until King David came and got it. So we've seen three answers here. The joy of of being in God's presence, the reverence of being in his presence, and abiding in that presence by faith. 